The Other Side of Midnight. 77 Local Spotlight. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. I am all for public safety, particularly in schools. I am all for emergency preparedness. I have said so repeatedly. And as a relatively new father, I have nothing but respect for people that want to ensure the safety of our children in schools. However, what I'm not for is terrifying students to death. And that is unfortunately what we do in New York State with respect to these lockdown drills. And now state legislators led by Brooklyn State Senator Andrew Guinardis and Assemblywoman Joanne Simon, they want to decrease the number of required lockdown drills in New York's public and private schools from four to a minimum of one a year and give parents the power to opt their kids out. Whether or not those precise details stick, we don't know. Reform is long overdue to dial down the scaremongering, which the editorial page of the New York Daily News used to describe this in their right, that grips far too many youngsters. As I've said, preparedness is a great thing, and given our nation's horrifying and ongoing history of school shootings, given the easy availability of guns and the sad state of mental health and the recent rise in all sorts of gun crimes, it's completely reasonable to require children and staff to occasionally rehearse for a scenario in which an armed intruder has entered the building. Thanks to such training in Uvalde, Texas in 2022, the pupils knew what to do, even though the police didn't. You remember what a disaster that was in terms of the police response. But there's a difference between intelligent preparation and excess, which is the only way to describe the law that New York passed in 2016 mandating four such drills. This makes our state a complete outlier among the 43 states requiring them. State education law also requires eight fire evacuation drills each school year. Eight of the dozen total required drills must take place between September 1st and December 31st. So a student who spends 12 years in New York elementary and secondary school would live through 144 drills, including 48 lockdown drills. I'm all for drills, but there's way too many of these. We should worry. We should make sure teachers and administrators are prepared, even more prepared. We're seeing alarming numbers of anxiety and depression among young people, and I don't see how four lockdown drills and eight fire drills a year does anything to assuage that. To be continued. The Other Side of Midnight. Local Spotlight. everyone. Starting in October, the city began to hand migrant families with school-age children 60-day eviction notices for their stays in city shelters. Well, today, the first of those notices expire. Thus far, only adults without children have been subject to the administration's attempts to eject migrants from shelters. In order to reapply for another stint, they must now 
now go through long lines in the cold for hours and sleep on the floor of waiting rooms for more than a week with limited access to food and showers. To date, most families with children have been spared this kind of disruption, but what happens next is unclear, though Mayor Adams has repeatedly said his administration's goal is for no families with children to sleep on the streets. In fact, that's something he reiterated in his press conference yesterday. This is not going to be a city where we're going to place children and families uh, on the street and have them sleep on the street. That is not going to happen. We've made that clear. About a third of migrant families in the city's care have been hit with these 60-day eviction notices. Families who have nowhere else to go when their time in shelter ends will be directed to return to the Roosevelt Hotel, the city's main intake center, to request another 60-day placement. But up through last week, those instructions still hadn't been communicated to families directly in writing. So ahead of the evictions, people who spoke with the city as well as a number of other press outlets described a mix of anxiety, dread, and resolve. For instance, the city quoted Joanna, a Venezuelan mother who asked that her last name not be used. She's been having hard conversations with her eight-year-old daughter about what's in store. I try to explain to her as gently as I can the reality so she can understand why we're leaving this place where her school bus comes to get her, where she's lived for a year, and where she feels like part of her home. Now, I don't think these people are going to be left to languish on the street. I mean, there's just something about the optics of women and children freezing on the street because they've been evicted that I can't see playing well with Mayor Adams' constituency. That being said, isn't this the sort of thing that you would consider before you came here? Isn't this the sort of thing you would consider before you went to a city that made clear we did not have the resources to accommodate? you? Isn't this the sort of thing that you would consider when Mayor Adams was offering free travel to anywhere in the country or the world? Maybe don't come here and expect to get a perpetual free ride. I'm not unsympathetic to what these folks are going through or about to go through, but I hope that perhaps this will stem the tide of folks coming here expecting to be taken care of when it comes to shelter, food, housing, schooling, and everything else. To be continued. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. The Other Side of Midnight. 77 Local Spotlight. One day at school, Eric Adams was, yes, the guy that would subsequently become mayor, was hanging out with a group of friends when someone showed up with a gun. That's according to his 2009 book, Don't Let It Happen. Still a child at the time, Mayor Adams believed the weapon was a fake. If you read the passage, it says this. I pointed what I thought was a toy gun at my group of friends and pulled the trigger. A round discharged, and only by the grace of God and my poor aim did the bullet miss my friends. The incident scared me so much that I dropped the gun and ran. Now think about that. Eric Adams is actually saying as a child, he pointed a loaded gun that he thought was a toy at his friends and pulled the trigger. Now that's crazy. 
I mean, it's crazy that that happened. Well, apparently it didn't happen. At a news conference yesterday, a few days after the passage was highlighted in an article by the publication Byline, Mayor Adams said the dramatic encounter did not happen. Um, I've never fired a gun in school. I think the person who, the co-author of the book may have misunderstood the exact someone. There was an incident in school with someone pointed a, they thought it was a toy gun, and they may have misunderstood that that book never got into print because we never went through the proofreading aspect of it. Now, what the mayor said there is incorrect. This book, which lists only Adams as the author, no ghostwriter, is currently for sale on Amazon and on the Barnes & Noble website. A physical copy was shown to Adams on Monday. It was also mentioned in a 2021 New York Magazine cover story about Adams and a 2022 Politico profile. This book was in print, and this alleged co-author that Eric Adams claims to have They didn't even give him credit. So the mayor has some explaining to do. Did he lie in his book or is he lying now? Who is this ghostwriter that he's blaming for misunderstanding the story? And if what you're saying yesterday is accurate, that this ghostwriter misunderstood your story, why not tell us who this ghostwriter is so we can actually ask the question? And what other stories in this book about your life are inaccurate? I think the public has a right to know. Beam me up. To be continued. The Other Side of Midnight. 77 Local Spotlight. One of my favorite things to do is watch criminal trials. If I had nothing to do, I would just go to court every day and just watch criminal trials. The jury selection process I find fascinating. The summations, the cross-examination, every aspect of it is just so interesting to me. And the bottom line is there are just so few criminal trials these days. But I have watched many and I've befriended many criminal defense attorneys as they were trying to pick a jury. And in almost every case, not every case, but almost every case, the criminal defense attorney tries to get black jurors on the jury because they believe that black folks, and again, I'm not speaking for every criminal defense attorney, but certainly the preponderance of them, they believe that black folks are more likely than a white juror to question what law enforcement says, to not take at face value what, say, a cop says, or just assume that because someone's indicted, they are guilty. A lot of white people have that mentality. Not in my mind, but in the minds of many criminal defense attorneys. And it goes the other way as well. Prosecutors often try to exclude black jurors for the same reason, including black prosecutors, by the way. Well, a state appellate court in New York has thrown out a 2019 Queens robbery conviction saying a prosecutor illegally prohibited three black people from serving on the jury. Sure enough, New York's appellate division said prosecutors will have to try Stalin Vera again if they still want to seek a conviction. It's one of a small but growing list of cases in which prosecutors are accused of illegally screening out jurors based on race or religion. 
many of them in Queens. The Queens DA's office said it's reviewing the case and did not respond to questions, but prosecutors and defense attorneys screen potential jurors before a trial begins and are allowed to block a certain number of people from serving on the jury. But the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has ruled that attorneys can't remove someone from the jury pool because of their race, their gender, or other protected characteristics like religion. But various studies over the years have found more diverse juries deliberate better and read more just verdicts at trial. As someone that is interested in the criminal justice system, as someone that is interested in making sure that people aren't assumed guilty when they go for a trial, I think this is an incredibly positive development. And I hope prosecutors in future cases will end this practice of simply trying to knock black people off the jury just because they're black. Instead, how about you convince them that the person that you're putting on trial is guilty? Beam me up! To be continued.